Hello everyone and welcome back. We have had quite some time off. Uh, we've all been enjoying our Christmas holiday or, or a holiday if you can call it that um, under all these restrictions but we are now looking forward into 2021 and we are kicking this all off with a fantastic guest. So welcome to the meeting room everyone and welcome Mr Daryl Murphy. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Thanks, Jed. All good. Thanks. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, I'm joined by me here as well. Hello there. Evening, everyone. Happy to be back. Hope everyone had a good Christmas and a happy new year and everyone's all right in 2021. Wonderful stuff. Right, let's get straight into it. So, Mr. Murphy, can you tell us a bit about sort of your, your education and, and namely your time at the University of Exeter? What did you study? Yes, uh, thanks, Jed. Yes, yeah, so, uh, so yeah, sorry, it was Exeter, not uh, not Nottingham. But in terms of, uh, so I I did maths. Um, um, you may some people find this hard to believe, but the the one thing I found natural at school was doing maths. Um, I was never great at writing essays, but uh, maths came to me. So actually, doing a maths degree was quite natural for me. I didn't really think about anything else. Um, I should get out in front. I kind of my aspirations were set quite early. I wanted to be a maths teacher. Actually, I think by the time I went to Exeter. I still thought that was going to be the the destiny. Um, so I did a maths degree. Um, long story short, uh, I won't go. It's a bit like therapy, otherwise. But I um, uh, I found the first year quite tricky, to be honest with you, because I was, to be honest, a big fish in a small pond. Because I was quite good at maths, and I went to university, and you figure out some some of the listeners might recognise this. You sort of realise that you're in a in, in a class of lots of other people, just as bright as you. And you've come from a school where you might have been quite good in what you were choosing to do. And that takes a bit of adjustment. Um, to be honest, I didn't quite embrace the nine o'clock lectures in the way I should have done in my first year. So um, my, my end of first year results were not stellar. That probably probably the wrong thing to say, but enforced the idea I should be a teacher. Uh, maybe that was the route through this. Um, enjoy <laughs> university and kind of get that to come out. Uh, the second year, I kind of tried a bit harder, to be honest, and then I kind of clicked. I realised that maybe, maybe I lacked a bit of confidence, but maybe I was I was actually better at maths than I was giving myself credit for. So, long story short, after the second and third year, I was actually I, I moved away from very pure maths, doing a bit more applied maths. I seemed to get on with it a lot better. And at the time, I was looking at various options, but the long and the short of it is, I did a PhD in the end because I did very well in my third year, and the professor of the department came and said. We want you to stay here and do a PhD. And to be honest, uh, at that age, and I was thinking about what else we're going to do, the idea of spending another three years at Exeter was quite attractive. And uh, I thought, yeah, why not? <laughs> so, so that was uh, that was the that was the time at Exeter. Um, now, in terms of sort of advice as well, everyone at the moment with the situation going on, in particular, are considering their their masters and sort of their future with yeah. with limited graduate schemes going. Um, and people not knowing what they can actually do with their lives are, are going into this sort of, well, what about a master's? Um, your advice for them, especially going through into that PhD route, what do you think it would be, in, in, even if it's to, to not do a master's if you're not genuinely uh, yeah, interested? I, I laugh, Jed, because um, I'm, I'm conscious that uh, the university is probably listening carefully to this and going, <laughs> destroying the, the prospects and everyone's sitting here listening going oh gosh yeah, do I want to do this master's um I think I think to be honest I didn't do a master's directly I went straight to the PhD the PhD is quite extreme to be honest with you and if I I'll, I'll put this across now um you'll come to this a little bit in terms of my career but 
I didn't have a very conventional route into finance. Um, I don't regret doing a PhD for one minute, right? So I don't regret it at all. Uh, it's nice every now and again when, you know, you can call yourself a doctor uh, in the right circumstances. Uh, I've had it once on a plane, which was my moment when they said, oh, it's a bit like you say, is there Any a doctor in the, on the plane? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, I don't use it very much and I'm not sort of uh, arrogant enough. I don't have it in my business card always. Sometimes I do just to sort of have a bit of profile. But, but you know, actually, I look back and I enjoyed it. It, it was a great experience. Um, uh, socially, to some degree, being extra for a while. I did one year of it in Australia, which puts a bit of a shine on the whole process, um, which was positive. And, you know, what I came out with, it taught me a lot about, in my case, it was about solving problems. I, I can't even do maths anymore, let alone the stuff I did in PhD. So so that, that stuff, obviously, I moved away from quite quickly. The more serious point is, particularly master's, I think there is a place possibly for master's. The main point is, in many cases, you could talk about a one-year course, and possibly for a lot of students sitting there, they might be saying, is there a way of pivoting from something they've done to something that might be a little bit more applied towards where they want to work? Um, so I, I wouldn't dismiss masters out of hand. Um, to be honest, I get a lot of it is sometimes financially driven. You know, can you, can you afford to have another year, as it were, in, in higher education? Um, is it an investment to make? Um, I think there's nothing wrong in doing it for its own sake. But I, the one note I would say openly is, and I, I'm going to talk, I guess, as you wish, a bit more about just different grad schemes that I've uh, been um, associated with. Certainly, I'm very close to the Aviva graduate scheme. The reality is it isn't going to help you get a job. Certainly in financial services, a master's or PhD won't give you a discernible advantage relative to undergrad. Um, it's great and people like it. It's a nice, interesting point, but it doesn't give you that sort of distinct kind of advantage so i think everyone should do it for their own sake but not i'd say the wrong reason to do it is for you think it's going to give you a better career proposition um that's not necessarily the case but you know as you say with grad schemes etc it will never be something negative as it were so it'll never count necessarily against you but it will have a uh, something which it may not have the immediate impact masters i say is different i will say i'm slightly contradicting myself in some respects, what I've noted is in the UK, PhDs are not seen the same way as in Europe or America. What I mean by which is there is a danger that you get labelled as a bit of academic. And what I did find originally, I had a route that people like the idea, but they're, they're, you get judged quite early. And one of the challenges is think, well, you've kind of been academia. Can you really make it in a work environment? So there's always been that side of what people second guess, what makes someone do a PhD? It's a little bit different to doing a master's because you spend over three years kind of immersed in this. And you just have to be sometimes it feels slightly negative, to be honest with you. Um, but I, I mean, I was in a position I was able to get over that. But I, I'd be a little bit wary of that. But again, it's a massive, um, I think, for a lot of people out there on the call, they'll want to do a PhD because they're probably doing super well in the course they're doing and they love it. And they think that actually it can lead to something else. If you want to stay in that discipline, then fine. But, you know, for it's not really the best thing to do to transition towards something else, as it were. I think that's really interesting because I know there's a lot of people contemplating that, especially Jedi and Afana years. So that's really interesting. And I guess following on quite nicely, we were wanted to talk about your early career. So obviously, like you mentioned, you spend a lot of time in academia, a lot of time in higher education. So how did you find the, the transition from education to full-time work? And what challenges did you face and how did you overcome them? 
so um, just by way of background, apologies, like a long-winded, a long-winded biography. Um, there's two, there's two parts to that in, in my life, as it were. So what I mean by which, when I when I finished the PhD, um, in the end, I decided the number one choice is I didn't want to stay in university, so I could have like gone to do sort of more post postgraduate kind of fellowship and then towards lecturer. So that's the route you might follow. I didn't want to do that because it looked a very lonely life, should we say? Um, but I actually went somewhere which was a it was an ex um, civil service organisation. It was a consultancy. They wanted me for my skills at the time. So it was about mathematically model, mathematical modelling, I should say. So there was a direct relevance to my PhD, as it were, but in a very applied circumstance. We were, a, we, were a, we were like a, a very techie consultancy and we would do work for some of the bigger engineering consultancies. So it wasn't a big step away from academia. And actually, my, my PhD point was the big big reason why they took me because I knew I sort of satisfied their requirements. If you fast forward that, I did that for five years. This bit you'll be interested in going back to what I was saying earlier. So I was um, I t- I always tell the story. I mean, I'm lucky, right? In a way that I I got into financial services as a general sector. In a way, I do genuinely think most people would struggle with, right? So there's me. I've done a PhD. I've worked for this fairly you know, techie uh, consultancy for about five years. So I'm 29 now, right? And then I have this epiphany where I go, you know what? Actually, most of my friends at university have become accountants, bankers. I mean, I, I was very intellectually fulfilled, but bluntly not being paid very much, right? And, um, <laughs> and part of it came down to what was going to be my motivation. So I started and I was supported where I was because they wanted to be more commercial. They, they, I agreed to do an MBA by distance learning. Now, that is a four-year course by distance learning. I mean, again, if I'd had the money at the time, I'd have just said, right, I'm going to leave this work, do the MBA. Because a lot of people do that. They use the MBA as the means to pivot to a different career. But I wasn't in that situation. So I thought, right, I'll do it by distance learning. And then I was 29. I did a year of it. And I thought, hang on a minute, I'm going to be like, you know, 32, 33. Who's going to, how am I going to change discipline, as it were? So I kind of, I looked at a few jobs. I tentatively applied to a few things. Long story short, I won't bore you with this. I ended up with a, a few interviews in banking and I was lucky that someone was interviewing. So they wanted financial modelers. I wasn't really, I'd done a little bit of finance ad, uh, accounting in my MBA, but I was only only nearly two years in, right? And I then decided, look, I'm going to try and have a go. I was very lucky. I got offered the role. So I started just in my late 20, I was nearly 30, I guess, 29, um, into financial services. I don't think these days, I mean, I look at the people coming through our door. That's not really, you know, that route is very rare. And I think I was, I recognize I was very lucky to do so. Um, that was a big transition. The first thing I did, which is to my day, I've never given up anything. I gave up the MBA, um, which was interesting because I thought, hang on a minute, I'm doing the MBA to move jobs. I have the job I kind of then thought I was wanted to do in banking and actually, I realized the MBA was going to be a drain on that because then I had to throw myself into to learn on the job, as it were. And um, that's the reason I backed myself, which is I thought, right, if I get the chance, I'll just throw myself into it. And actually, what I don't need is the distraction, which would have been nice, but the distraction of the MBA. So it's really against my nature. But I did a hard decision to make. I, I just quit the MBA and said, look, I've now got where I want to do. I'm going to do the on the job training. There's an interesting point there because a couple of times i've seen some of the younger guys come into the into banking historically and they want to do things like there's very good masters courses in finance 
Uh, one of them did the sort of London Business School Masters. And they realized that that is really hard to keep a full-time job and do a master's. And, you know, for that reason, most of them in the end end up giving up their job and then devoting their time to the, the master's course. So, so in my transition wasn't very standard. So I had that fairly natural step into semi-academia, you might say, and then into banking. That was a, that was a major change. Um, now, now, to be honest, I'm a bit old-fashioned insofar as most of my upbringing, but uh, of a certain age. But, I mean, being very open about it, my approach to it was, particularly given where I'd come from, I was now getting paid quite a lot of money to doing something and I was quite interested in what I was doing and that set the course for the next 25 years of where I'm standing here. But I, I distinctly had an approach which I have sold my soul to the devil. What I meant was, I, you know, it's a very different world these days and you guys have a very different perspective on work-life balance. My view was I'm now being paid to give up my whole life to do this. In a sense. So, so that helped me a little bit because I just threw myself into it and said, look, you know, I think I had the capability. I realized that actually the, the sort of eight years from graduating until I got that job in banking did serve me some purpose. I'd learned how to solve problems doing a PhD. I was obviously relatively mature, hopefully, um, as, a, as, as an individual. And also I'd worked in a consultancy. So I understood some of the basics of how to manage a client, how to have meetings. It was with a very technical discipline but I was exchanging one discipline to another, but in a, and I, and I know, I know some people on this call would have watched industry, right. But it wasn't quite that. And I can't remember, I can't remember, you know, my time being quite as exciting as it was on that TV show, but, but, you know, it was similar in the sense that you had this kind of work hard, play hard attitude, but the expectations were that you were just throwing yourself into that job. And, and I, and I enjoyed it. I realized that at the end of the day, maybe I was more commercial than, than academic, should we say. That makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, that, that multiple approach from coming from academia to the to consultancy to banking is definitely something that's going to, it happens, I think, these days because the route straight into banking is quite challenging for graduates. Um, yep. And I think along with that, there are many listeners who might be entering their first roles this autumn or perhaps are in the midst of their first roles or are going to internships. So when you go, went into consultancy and when you went to banking, either one, do you have any advice for do's or don'ts for our, our listeners as to how to make the most out of those opportunities and definitely what not to do to avoid getting a bad reputation or, or, or performing yeah poorly? yeah um no absolutely so i mean the first thing is um i i recognize and i we could talk a bit like so if you wish but i recognize the 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 grad programs you know the i feel sorry for you guys right because when i all my friends i mean some of my friends went into investment banking but that was the case in my day, in your third year, you look around and you went for an interview and you're lucky or not. These days, it feels like you need to be thinking about this from your first day at university. So, you know, first year internship, second year internship, you're on this kind of, you know, um, a hamster wheel, as it were. So I know how hard those intern programs are as hard to get in as grad programs, as you know, because certainly for us at Aviva, if you get in the intern program and you, you kind of do OK, you will get a job out of it. So it's really just accelerated that process. So the first thing I'd say is well done to everyone that's got a job because it's no small feat, right? I recognize that getting a role on a grab program is hard. I think one interesting point is it depends on what that grab program, if it is a program. So some people might be going into jobs where they just have an intake and it's not, maybe it's a smaller smaller organization and you're just thrown in as a grad. In other cases, a little bit like ours, it's a slightly more structured program. You're going to do rotations, et cetera. Um, the tip is when you come in, um, 
I think some of it's just common sense, but I think, you know, real, real network, networking is key in general terms. What I mean by that is your peer group. So, you know, forming, I mean, everyone's going to come out of university where everyone probably has got a fairly strong peer group network relationship. You're going to something where you don't know anyone. So lean on the rest of you. So it depends on the organization and in the area you're in, but you, that might be three or four people. It might be 20 people. Um, if you go into something like an accountancy firm, the intake's large. So the nice thing about accountancy firms is the grad intake is a bit like a bit like being at university, but getting paid for it in a sense, because you kind of there's so many of you, as it were. So you really got to lean on those those colleagues, lean on the maybe the grad year above as well. And and I think just embrace it. And I do recognize it, it will be a little bit of a lonely world relatively, depending on where you are. If you go into things like accountancy, you're on a training program. So actually, that's quite good. You get looked after. If you come to someone like Aviva, you are rotated. But basically, you're th- for six months, you're thrown into a business and it's a bit kind of right, get on with it. And my tip to everyone is just embrace it. Um, I would say, I'm, I'm, I, I say, this, you know, uh, half jokingly, but I recognize my, my general senses. And again, I'm just sounding a bit old saying this. Most grads that come in are, I have a higher degree of confidence than I recognized years ago, relatively. So I think that's a positive thing. Um, that self-confidence stands you in good stead. And I think in most organizations, I would say everyone, but certainly where I work, um, don't be scared to interact with people. Don't ever feel that, I mean, I'm not saying I'm the most senior guy, right? But if a grad came up to me and said, can I have a chat about something? He's not necessarily working my team. I'd never say no, right? I'm not going to say no, I'm too important. Why on earth are you talking to me? I think those days are gone. I think everyone is very accessible, but we're all very busy, right? So no one's going to probably come to you and say, what you need to do is this or come and talk to me. Um, you need to take that opportunity. And I think just just really embrace everything. I think for those of you going on a program that has rotations, my other, my little, little bit of a tip is just be a little streetwise. And what I mean by that is understand how that program works, understand what dictates how where someone's going to land at the end of it. Think carefully about the rotations. I've seen the better grads at our place are those that come in, they have a clear idea where they want to end up, but then they go, right, this is my strategy. I want to work here. And if you want to work in a certain part of the business, obviously make connections and make it fairly known that you want to do so so most of it's common sense but i think don't i, I don't have to tell i think your generation is but don't don't be shy in coming forward i think and just kind of um uh just 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 try and fit in on that basis and really have a standard mark the point i would say is i said this to one of the interns we had who then became a grad uh and i'll say this in the nicest possible way but he sat there and i said to him in, in what we do in, in, in my area of the business of Eva, I said, any bright person who's interested, we can teach them the content. And my point was, you I, I, in the nicest possible way, I said to him, you have no content I'm interested in, basically, because you've not done a vocational degree that's led you to this position. This guy, had a, you know, a good economics degree, smart, smart guy, as it turned out. I mean, most grads are in that position. They're just smart. They've done a degree. They've demonstrated that they are of certain and they've got a broader sense of what they're about. My point was, I've become more old-fashioned. I said, what I'm interested in is how much you show in terms of passion and interest for what you're doing. And actually, uh, and this sounds like I'm, again, a bit old in the, in the tooth, I'm increasingly interested in how people articulate themselves, so how they bring themselves across. When you take them to a meeting, 
how natural they feel in being able to teach, speak to someone is just like human beings, right? So the fact they can speak to someone else, it's not just about certainly in finance, just crunching numbers. We are looking for future, genuinely, the people are going to have a future role in the organization. So actually, the ability to articulate yourself in presentation, hold a conversation, write good English, sounds a bit old fashioned, but actually is really important. Yeah, I think those soft skills, as well as, as you mentioned, those showing a passion and interest now, because um, over the years, university has become so popular and quite common for a lot of people. It, that almost goes out the window. It's like, right, yeah, everyone has a certain level of degree. So what else have you got to offer? Um, exactly. And, and I think that's very important for people looking forward. Um, now, looking forward in, in your career to, to your next yeah. stage, I believe in 2003, you joined the Royal Bank of Canada as a director. Yeah. Um, how was this in com- comparison to your previous roles? How did it differ? And I think more importantly, how do you feel this position developed you as a as a leader and someone sort of as a, a bigger fish in this pond now? Yeah, no, good question. So, so the first thing is, I mean, I've always been in the infrastructure sector, so it's just continued. I've had what one during one interview, what someone called a peripatetic career, which I said was a, was a violin teacher. But um, but what they meant was I'd been I just joined lots of different organisations. There there are good reasons about that. I've done team moves. I've moved. It is not uncommon in financial services, banking, et cetera, to move around. That's one way in which you develop. I, I certainly, you know, I realize that's a fact of life. And I think for you, for all of you on the call, that will be a future of your The idea of having 30 years in one organization is kind of gone. I think that'd be very rare going forward. I think as a direct, the key thing you're saying there in that move to a director was about responsibility. Um, interesting points about banking. It's changed a bit, but initially you generally progressed based on what's perceived to be your sort of technical ability so what that meant was if you were very good very good transactionally about what you're doing day to day and you served your time you went up the sort of curve and as a director and i and i have sort of directors in my team at the moment in viva you know they are they are generally focused on their technical discipline what what you what you first get a sense of, as you say, is line management. So managing other people, you know, juniors below. Generally more transactional, though. So you've just got people on a deal you're working with. You are then beginning to be more responsible. You're being held to account because you might get you might get paid more, but you, it's the first time you get recognised as, you know, actually uh, at, at the junior levels. If you're if you if the firm's successful a lot, that might impact what you get paid as a bonus, etc. But in a director level, you can dictate your own. It's not quite eat what you kill. If you work for someone like Goldman Sachs, it might be. But in most places, you know, you are you are subject to the externalities in terms of what the size of bonus pool is, et cetera. But there's expectation on you. So the goals for a director would be you need to generate business. And if you don't generate business, then that's it. And that's the first time you begin to feel kind of that responsibility. Um, I always say if you're a sort of associate director and associate, whatever the role might be below, it's not your gift as to whether you have more work or less work. Generally, there's lots of work and you just try and do it the best you can. Director, you're more responsible. So it was that sense of all of a sudden, some of the business ideas of profit and loss, et cetera, become even more meaningful. You've got to be able to you know, substantiate what you're there for and start to lead people. Having said that, if I go back to RBC, I would say openly, I, I was a long way from the leadership role I have to now. 
I probably didn't, I, I, at that level, I wasn't really dictating a, the strategy of the team. And actually from a people leadership side, it was relatively straightforward. It was a bit more transactional. You know, we talk a bit about what I'm doing now, but I, I have a lot more people and a lot of my role is I'm, you know, certainly during COVID, you know, the people look to you as like, you are the person leading them on that side. And I would say actually COVID's taught me more about leadership skills than I had previously. The point I go back to is in banking, the leadership skills, that softer skill is not something that's really, certainly my time, wasn't really nurtured. So the expectation was, this is where the phrase, you know, being promoted to a level beyond your competence, because in a way you got promoted to running a team because you were technically very good. And then it's a recognition that the technically very good people aren't necessarily, and in banking often definitely aren't, the right people to lead a team. Um, now, moving forward from this, ha- having sort of picked up this this experience as a director, after three years at RBC, you decided to move on to HSBC. What was uh, a particular reason for this? Because obviously there are a lot of job changes uh, uh, more common now, but this is a short time. So what was the reason for this move? Uh, yeah, well, so, fa- frankly, it was I, was I was sitting there happy enough at RBC and HSBC came for our head. I mean, it was kind of gratuitously it was the opportunity and money so basically uh, obviously the way the banking where the banking sort of financial services work is you know the recruitment agents are very active and moves like this are, are generally not always instigated by the individual i was reasonably happy i'd actually moved to rbc as part of the team that i was with going right back to when i made that first step into banking albeit in two other organizations hsbc was the first time i left some of those people behind because they said we want a managing director to lead this business. Um, and I said, oh, that sounds great. It was a natural step for me, but I wasn't looking for it. It was, and I've had the fortuitous sense of, you know, recruitment guy came to me and said, look, we're, we're hiring for this role. You know, are you interested? Um, and, and the rest was history as it were. So in a way I was tempted there. I did weigh it up long and hard. My wife will attest it. I had to go through, you know, it's kind of pros and cons because I, there's a little bit of loyalty there. I was leaving behind two people I'd worked with at that time for nearly 10 years. Um, but for me, it was a natural step. It was a case of, right, I need to step out there, Shadow. This is now my real senior move and I need to do it on my own. And that was the that was probably the most kind of um, fearful thing. If I look back, I was an MD of a team at the time. Not so different, actually. We'll talk a bit about a little course I had through KPMG but not so different to what I'm doing now actually when I was interviewed by Aviva a lot of my reference points in terms of competency uh interview questions you recognize were going back to HSBC about what was my style how did I treat you know kind of poor uh performance you know have I have I had to let people go how do I praise all this sort of stuff and my reference point was much more about HSBC I look back and think if I had my time again I would have done that leadership role definitely better. I think it was very, it was the first time I really was exposed to a lot of leadership kind of challenges. Bearing in mind, I was at HSBC during the financial crisis as well. So that was quite an exciting time. I say that jokingly. And (laughs) and I had, and a more serious point, I had my probably worst moment, but I think it was a character building thing. So one, as a result of that, we had a head head count reduction. And, you know, it wasn't a great day when I had to let go about 10 people at the team. And I must admit that was a, that was quite a defining moment because when you're sitting opposite people, some of whom are quite senior, let you know, basically saying to them, and they're sitting there going, "How am I going to get another job?" Um, 
you know, it's, it just wakes you up a little bit to the, the the sort of some of the challenges of that that industry, as it were. Um, but you know, it's an interesting one. I think it was uh, it was a great time because the business was growing quite quickly initially. We hit the financial crisis, which was a bit of a uh, shake in in the banking sector. But you know, I think for me, it was a case of right. It, it fulfilled an opportunity to break away and do my own my own thing and be seen as a little bit more of a of a genuine leader, as it were, relative to what I described in terms of RBC. So that's actually that flows quite nicely into the next uh, question. So. For our listeners who don't know, can you just describe the difference between an MD, so a managing director, and a director which you had at RBC? Yeah, so um, in, in short, what it really comes down to, directors in banking terms, and I know directors get thrown around commonly, but what, in, in my world, a director normally is the most senior sort of transactional person, as it were. So, so those individuals might have some line management responsibility but they all reporting up to someone who will be a managing director who probably, you know, the big difference is if you think about, again, I'm being, as you, as you figured out, it's all about money. But in terms of, in terms of director, your goals will be focused on transactional revenues, like you need to do so many deals. As a managing director, you'll be judged on what the business is doing overall, as it were. So it's, there's even less of, and you're doing less. I mean, in some cases, I was doing transactions but your overall responsibility is how the team's functioning. And there'll be a series that there'll be a number of directors below that you then have to manage and make sure that they deliver what they're trying to deliver. So what they theirs adds up, and then you have to carry even more of that side. What one thing I did learn, I'm mean, gonna say, you know, something that maybe your your listeners will kind of plant in their minds and will come back to maybe in 10, 15 years. The classic thing in banking in particular, at MD level, you are getting increasingly a position of more vulnerable in terms of you know restructuring etc because you suddenly become quite a high high paid person in an organization and so it can get a bit political because it's all about trying to build your empire it gets a bit game of thrones as it were so it wants to build their own little empire out of this and and that gets quite pronounced once you're at that managing director level because you it's all about then you know how you've got your footprints in terms of what your what your arms are around in terms of that that particular business I think that's really interesting because, you know, as people develop their careers, as listeners develop, it's very interesting to know and, you know, know how to position yourself best in the different uh, in the different positions. So after the HSBC, you took on a different role at KPMG as a partner. Now, if you could just explain to us firstly why you joined KPMG and also what does a partner do that's different to what you did at HSBC? Yeah. Very different, and uh, for those listeners, don't worry. There's only there's only one more move after this, so it's not like another twenty. I would think, God, how long is this going on? <laughs> um, in terms of the KPMG, um, the short answer is the financial crisis I mentioned at HSBC. Um, HSBC was kind of in a good position, you may recognise, in terms of um, solvency at that time. It wasn't like HSBC wasn't going to go bust. Some banks were in a rather more precarious position, uh, so we should have been in a good place. Um, however, there was a lot of stress around going on. We did we did let people go. I I was kind of fine. In fact, in a very David Brent way, I did quite well at it actually because my empire actually increased as a result of that. So um, <laughs> that's a bit uh, I can say that now, but at the time is a bit more sensitive. Um, but I had a slightly bigger empire. Uh, we had a new overall. My boss at the time was the global head. Um, was very positive. I got on pretty well with him. And then the only thing the worry which he couldn't control was. Was HSBC really behind the business? And there was a lot of stuff going on in banks, which you have no visibility on. And I felt it just felt a bit precarious. 
I remember talking to my wife about, she said, well, you know, are you okay? And I said, well, I think so. But my, I said, I'll be fine unless they get rid of the whole business. And to be honest with you, when I say what, what I did as sort of infrastructure was probably, you know, it wasn't beyond the realms of possibility within 12 months, they might go, which banks can do, go, right, we're going to quit this, this whole business. Um, and I said, in that time, we were very active in the Middle East and I was going, well, maybe I might have to think about going to Dubai, that where there'd be more activity. And we were beginning even to think about that. And then out of the blue, coming back to this, the theme, and headhunter called me. So they're very, uh, they're like sort of, um, you know, sharks in the water in a sense, but sometimes they're your friends. So this guy I knew, he called <laughs> me and he said, he said, what's happening at HSBC? He wanted to know what's going on. Uh, then he said, what about you? How's this going? He goes, well, I'm having a few conversations with KPMG they're setting up a, a global team. Uh, KPMG is a bit like McDonald's. When I meet all oh, the big four is generally, I, it's a franchise model. I'm not sure many people know this, but the big four is a franchise model. So every country is its own partnership. It looks like a global firm, but it's not really global. So they said, actually, one of the challenges is how do we do a global business with all this kind of confederation of, in, um, of countries? And infrastructure was seen as a big theme for them. So to be honest, it was a case of what's sure about HSBC. And someone basically said, look, join this little global team. You'll be flying around the world, et cetera, um, doing infrastructure. And at the time, I thought, gosh, that sounds pretty tempting relative to the, <laughs> yeah, the pressures I was under in terms of running a team. So it was a voyage. It was a leap into the unknown. Um, I signed up for it and you know, loved it. It was very, very different, though. Um, obviously, as a partner, you are at a senior level. But the important thing about a partner is, you know, you're um, the big four. See, anyone joining and listening here on a big four, I say you're coming as a grad. The two, the two best areas in the, in a big four is either to be a graduate trainee or a partner because they're both looked after very well. The bit in the middle is harder, <laughs> is it work? Because <laughs> actually, the the partners do pay themselves quite well because um, it is it's just a very large version of a a classic family partnership, you might say. Um, there's an argument that perhaps too too large in terms of its partnership, but you know it, it needed to be senior enough. And my point was, I was a managing director in a bank, so the equivalent was being a partner. I was made a partner. I was part of a small team. I had a great time in, for a number of times, which was very eye opening because KMG was active in infrastructure all around the world. I, in a, it wasn't great the fact that I had a young baby at the time, but I was traveling every other week. Um, um, and and around the world i might i focus quite a lot on europe but you know i can tell you about trips i went to you know i can throw out some things out there i look back i went to libya syria um mongolia um outside korea um obviously more conventional stuff around you know indonesia singapore uh a lot to the us and canada uh brazil so it was great uh, you know sort of opportunity and i look back it was great but you know it, it served its time there and the only difference was the way it worked was I didn't have a big team to manage. So actually, having managed the team, and it's not always positive looking after people, I had very few people to look after. I was more about driving the business. So for a period of time, I quite enjoyed that, actually. It was more about me being part of you know a series of peers, working with a guy in Canada, a couple of guys in London, guy in Australia, guy in Hong Kong, and we had this global team together. So it was, it was a great time, um, and I really enjoyed it. But... I must admit it was quite unusual because I was a partner having not been through the ranks of a big four. And I appreciate a lot of people on this call perhaps are going into the big four. It's a great place to train and some great talent. But, you know, 
many people get to a certain point and then obviously use it to move away. But, you know, you get to that partner level. It's quite, uh, again, it's, uh, I joke about Game of Thrones. Now, the partnership in Big Four definitely is a Game of Thrones thing, which is, <laughs> it's all about individual profile and, and actually defining your own territory. But I was, I benefited by having this very unusual global role. Um, now, before we get on to your current position, uh, picking up on something you've just said there about how how a lot of people probably listening and and across across the UK and elsewhere want to go into the big four. Um, it's the the first thing that comes into people's minds when they're applying for for certain sectors. They 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 aspire for that. What is becoming more important at the moment is culture and how uh, how a company values its its graduates and its workers and you said that one of the best positions is obviously partner or a, a, a graduate level what was the culture like sort of in in these companies and obviously your experience of kpmg the reason i say that uh, jed is that um the training program is is obviously very strong i mean i i joke because when i was um when i was trying to you know i, I was working on transactions and i still had I, I even I was traveling around the world uh, in my latter stages. I was doing a few transactions in the UK and working more with the guys in London. And um, one thing I noted was sometimes in the nicest possible way, you had these grads who suddenly would disappear for six weeks because they're doing study leave, etc. And oh God, he's gone again. You know, so um, so but that's positive in a way because they were really supported around. And obviously, um, what's really changing the big four is it's not just about auditing anymore. So the days where you had to do auditing have gone. Um, you'll know that their, their management consultancy arm has grown, digital's grown. I mean, the sort of people they're taking on, the skills they're after is much broader than the old days of just people doing accountancy and developing. Having said that, the people in corporate finance where I was um, generally often were coming off the grad program where they were doing their accounting qualifications. Um, it's not for everyone, right? I appreciate it's not, you know, some people um, want to do it, be an accountant forevermore, others not so, less so. One thing I would say is it's a qualification. It's probably the best in, in financial business terms, the best sort of general qualification you're going to get coming out of university. But it's hard work. But if you've got that, they're never going to take it away from you. So, you know, in 20 years, you, you're, you're qualified as an accountant. It means something in, in that context. But the firm really supported you. I think, to be honest, the hardest time, and some of your listeners may remember this and come back to this in four years or so, is the first year when you're when you're qualified, as it were, because you go from being a kind of trainee, as it were, in that sense, and you go to being whatever the firm calls it. We used to call, call it more, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, associate or associate manager. And if you come into that level, it's quite lonely then because you're in a big organisation, a very large peer group. And all of a sudden, all that support is gone because all that training is gone. And you're kind of going, right, off you go now. And you realize you're at the bottom of what is deliberately quite a big hierarchy. And, you know, and then it's about those that want to climb that greasy pole step by step, as it were. Um, and that takes that takes a bit of doing. Having said that, obviously, the firms are very aware that once people are qualified, they've got a bit of good practical experience. They go and leverage it and go elsewhere. So it gives you that ticket to to uh, to go. So I think I think that entry point is always worth looking at. I don't. It's another one where I think it's hard to um, disabuse someone to say it's definitely not a bad thing. I think it just gives you time to assess what you want to do. I think the council firms are increasingly challenging for people to go. What what do I want to do there? You know, you'll be aware that the these days there are teams doing cyber. There's teams doing you know kind of um, uh, high end you know, technical consultancy. 
as well as everyday you know auditing and you know things like corporate finance that I was doing. So I think that's what I I would get across. That's why I think they were looked after. Your point I, I really stress is this: this comes back to probably interview process, etc. Culture and values are very important. Um, I could put it in a Viva terms actually. Um, we certainly expect people to have read the red site, website and understand what the values are of Eve. We've got four very clear values. And actually, the whole process is a bit contrived, but the interview process, as it were, the assessment centre, is deliberately constructed to try and assess how people fit within those values, if it were. So, so actually, um, being able to understand that, that that idea of cultural identity and values is increasingly very important. Um, and what we're looking for, ideally, is does that individual have a set of values that match the organisation? Um, now, moving forward then to, to current day, really, um, you've talked about Aviva uh, uh, as, as we've gone through this interview. Now, you have really focused in on infrastructure at Aviva. You're, you're the head of infrastructure, I believe. And yeah, yeah. Can you explain to people sort of infrastructure? A, a lot of people might may think bridges, bridges and, and trains. No, they do, and that's that's better than I get. I, I get. I guarantee you, I get twenty emails a day because for a lot of people who are external, infrastructure means IT. Um, so I get people going. You know, they offer me all sorts of cloud-based sort of stuff, and people trying to pitch my business. They think I'm head of technology at um, Aviva. Um, infrastructure is kind of a thing. I think to be fair, it's 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 a little bit more in the spotlight than when I started. I mean, my first job it was in a what was called project finance, which is a recognised banking term project finance business we were doing infrastructure but no one called it that as it were as you fast forward i think infrastructure has become a little bit more common um sort of terminology but what we mean by that is my definition would be it's the it's the sort of my, my formal definition would be it's the assets that you know enable serve public services to be provided and you're right actually jed what it means is everything though from transport so that would be you know, roads, bridges, ports, airports, through to uh, social infrastructure, which um, was done through kind of, you know, PFI, et cetera, historically, but things like schools, hospitals, et cetera, actually. Um, actually, a good example would be um, uh, infrastructure. We call infrastructure would also include uh, student accommodation, actually. Uh, some people might call that real estate, but increasingly I'd see that as infrastructure. Um, then they, you've seen a big growth in energy and utilities. And what's really one of the reasons why people understand infrastructure more has been the growth of renewable energy and obviously carbon transition. So a lot of time, what I'm talking about externally is net zero transition to uh, you know low carbon, low carbon society. And that needs a lot of in infrastructure investment. So what we're saying there is renewables. It's about transmission. It's about hydrogen. Um, battery storage, carbon capture and storage, nuclear, all that stuff is, I would see as infrastructure. And um, and the last area that's really exciting is digital. And what I mean by that in infrastructure terms, and we have investments in um, fiber, broadband and fiber to the home and data centers as well, which is a growing area. So all of that we would define as an asset class called infrastructure. Um, I fell into it, to be honest with you. What's interesting is when people come for interviews at Aviva as an asset manager, um, in the nicest possible way, it's a bit like they've seen billions. So they want to be a fund manager, right? And they, 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 and also they, what most people, because they go to an asset manager like Urzal, or they may go to BlackRock or Elgin, wherever it might be, 
they come in because they want to be an equity fund manager. That's the that's what they see as the sort of pinnacle. And I remember interviewing one of the, the grads on the, the assessment centre, and it was myself and a real estate person. I could see the visible kind of disappointment going, what's infrastructure? And what I mean, what are you guys doing? And, and I appreciate historically some students haven't really recognised what this is. Um, increasingly, it's changing because more students are aware of things like green technology renewables. So I'm finding more people saying, I want to do infrastructure because I want to be involved in renewables. So that's a positive thing coming out of it. Um, but that's that's what I do day to day. That's what we now call infrastructure. And it's high profile, right? So um, uh, I get it. But you need you need to be a bit geeky because you need to understand a little bit of engineering. You need to be a bit of a jack of all trades, to be honest with you. Um, quite commercial, but it's good to know, you know, you can't really finance a bridge without understanding the basics about how it gets built, as it were, and how risky it is. Um, you've got to learn lots of things about the energy sector. You know, you can't look at something and go, wow, that's magic. You've got to kind of understand how it works. Um, so you need to be a little bit geeky. A lot of people have backgrounds which are quite engineering mass focus, but not necessarily so. You can, what, what I look for, to be honest with you, is passion. And what I love, and I say to some of my younger guys, what I want more is I love the stuff they're going to do outside of what they do day to day. So when they show a passion, particularly for infrastructure, because it's not like, you know, hedging derivatives or something which is all very glamorous but you know is a bit a bit abstract this is real life and you know it's got a political angle it's got a real life angle and i love people who come and say look you know i want to talk about infrastructure i want to engage and what i like is that little bit of spark of passion and that to me is the difference between those that probably want to do infrastructure and those that don't um and you've sort of spoken about the this push towards net zero and um climate change sustainability how do you mm-hmm. think these factors such as climate change and uh, sustainability are affecting infrastructure debt transactions um very much so so i think it's obviously driving the market to some degree i think opportunities once upon a time you know if you go back far enough you know we'd have been building new gas fire stations etc coal once upon a time that's sort of moving the actual activity particularly in the uk at the moment is heavily about for private finance and investors like ourselves. You know, there are a lot of new investments into renewables. So we're talking about, you know, onshore wind, uh, solar, big offshore wind opportunities. We've invested a lot of debt into offshore wind. And we've got new technologies developing as well. EV charging is a new idea. Beginning to get ahead around that. There's going to be a huge amount of infrastructure needed to meet net zero and that's a great opportunity so so that's one of the reasons why people are excited by this if that's what turns you on then it's you look at it and go look it's real i can see what i'm doing i'm making a difference and to be honest a lot of people do feel very passionate about it and that's what you need to to say actually there's a great market opportunity so it's all a bit of a win-win really so it's it's helping to attract people to that area and the business is growing because we need a lot of infrastructure to meet to meet the well to meet the pathway to net zero. Um, now, your time working at Viva, how do you think this has, has differed to the other firms where, where you've worked in the past, where you've spent your, your sort of three year stints at? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've done all the four years, Jed. So, uh, <laughs> but you know, I've got to an age though where I did. I mean, to be, I genuinely, when I went to Viva, I knew that at my age, I probably wasn't going to have another another stint. So this was for keeps, as it were. Uh, I say it jokingly, but I mean, you know, I love what I'm doing. I've been able to develop. Um, I have a debt team. I now have an equity team as well. So, so the infrastructure world's very good. We're very high profile. Viva likes it. You know, it's a, an insurance group at the end of the day, but we're in an asset manager. We're very important to the group. 
it's got a good profile internally. Um, how does the role change? We're back to leadership. So having, you know, if I go back to that reference to HSBC um, as an MD, I'm kind of in a similar position, which with a broader role, though. And actually, what's really nice in the nicest possible way is I am sort of Mr. Infrastructure in, um, in Aviva. It may sound, it may get the sense I'm a bit sort of egocentric, but I mean, it's nice having that because I am the, the expert, as it were. I run that team. I'm, you know, senior leadership team within our real assets area. So it's given me even more sense about being able to dictate strategy. What I worry, I mean, the two things I worry day to day about is no longer transactions because I've got, you know, teams to do that. That's been the big change. My technical skills are not, I mean, I think they're solid enough, but I don't do any financial modeling anymore. Um, my technical skills are a given. My, my, I'm, I'm too, I'm, I'm renowned to being too micro, I'm, I'm going to say micromanaging, but I'm too much in the detail. So when my directors have an issue on a deal, they'll come to me still and go, what do you think? What do you think I should do? I am, you know, I, I like to be kind of, I'm very well, I mean, well known in the market, lacking any humility. And I like the networking. I, I've never really drawn a clear line between work and play. I, I believe that you'll do best because you're working, because you enjoy it. I've got some of my best mates are actually I've met through work, as it were, not just my, my only friends in a relative either. I, you know, I've got school friends, uni friends or work friends in a sense. There's no one else in that sense. So, that, you know, some of them I've known for many, many years. And, you know, that's that's great where you can enjoy that and, and enjoy the people's company. Um, but the more important thing with Eva is having that responsibility to say, right, you're leading the strategy. The difference is that compared to a bank is we're an asset manager. We're either managing Aviva funds, so I'll have an internal client or increasingly external client. So I still, I'm still embedded with this idea of I like serving clients, as it were. It's not, but what they're doing is entrusting you to invest their money at the end of the day. So you have to sort of take that uh, as serious as it sounds. Um, but it's a great, it's a great sort of place to be in. You talk about values and culture. I think they're very strong at somewhere like Aviva um, because at the end of the day, it's an insurance business. Customers are very important. That that gets transcended into into the way we operate as an as Aviva investors, and as I say, I, I love infrastructure. It's very important. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a win win really. So yeah, it's been good on that side. My last point I'll make is that we, you know, I have a I have a you know large team. Actually, I, I'm not sure it's true. It feels true. I've got a relatively young team, both in the debt team and the equity team. You know, we've had a lot of grads go through the teams. Uh, one thing goes back to the point I was saying. You know. I've always, I, I, I like to think of myself, certainly compared to my peers, very accessible to them. I take a strong interest in how they develop. I'm probably famous for being quite straight talking. So someone gets surprised when, because I get, I get nearly everyone come to me and say, I need promotion. I need to get paid more. I'm the first one who will say to them, look, you know, fine, this is all we can do for you. And I, you know, if you want to go somewhere else then go somewhere else, you know, we get a bit taken aback by that. But I, I've always tried to give them very clear, you know, objective advice about what they're doing um and they they seem to value that um so from that side it's been it's been positive and certainly covid is focused i said earlier on that leadership around people i've had to learn particularly and you'll appreciate it's been hard for you guys as students i've got grads who have had to go back to their parents where i'd, I'd laugh right and i go well that's nice at least someone's doing your cooking and washing but i recognize right it's a bit like for you guys when you when you're 22 23 you didn't really imagine you'd have to go back and live with your parents and work um, you know, it's not quite, particularly if you, if you were intending to live in London or something, you've had to go back to wherever. Um, so that's been, that hasn't been so great. There are lots of other one guys in their mid twenties who are shared accommodation, working around a kitchen table these days in London in particular, it's not always so glamorous because 
you know, property is expensive. You might be living with people aren't necessarily your mates either, just people you live with. And that's been really hard. And, you know, whether you've got not just the people with young families or, or older kids in my case, but it's actually, um, I think I've really felt COVID's been about the younger generation, as you guys know, and I felt it at work as well. Um, I've not talked about mental health well-being as much as over the last six months, nine months. Um, and I've had to realise, and this sounds a bit judgmental, but I've realised that, you know, the younger generation, you know, it sounds, sounds horrible to say that, but genuinely, I think, you know, it, the resilience has really been tested. I'm, I'm of a generation been a bit stoic. My, my approach was let's just get on with it. I've had to realise that not everyone's really been in that position to be able to just say that. And, and actually, you've got to realise how everyone's got their own little battles at home, different challenges, and I've had to embrace that. So the people side over the last 12 months has been my probably one of my number one challenges. So my, my two worries are, where's the business going? Are we successful? And is, the, is everyone functioning well as a team? And I probably have an enormous part of my time is about managing people. Because what I've realized is it get, you get to a level where I can't do it on my own. I need the team to do it. And if they don't function, it won't happen. So you need to invest time with those individuals. I think that's fascinating. It's something definitely we've all experienced. I know our listeners, students, young young people have experienced over the past um, the past 12 months. So it's nice to hear that um, people in, in high levels at, at jobs are focusing that as well. Um, I think absolutely fascinating i want to combine our final question which we ask in every podcast with a bit about aviva so what we like to ask in the end of every question and then sorry and every podcast is from your experiences are there any specific traits or behaviors which help distinguish successful individuals and i want to adapt that a bit and ask you if you can maybe talk about how people can show that when applying to graduate roles for example at aviva and how they can show they have the ability to become successful leaders just as yourself yeah great great question um and also i have i've had i've done some work with uh associates with our grad program i actually i've done some mentoring actually for for students at extra actually as part of the alumni program so i i talk i talk about this a lot to obviously people like you know your listeners in that sense about how do you how do you sort of progress i mean it, sorry it's a long answer but it hopefully it's helpful so the first things i want to recognize is most of the big organizations use a very common system um it's the same hr consultant so many of you've been through interviews you'll know the first thing is you know you are putting a cv in it's probably going to get read by a robot necessarily person so so you know do my, my my tip is though just on firstly on cv um don't don't feel that you know the sort of summer job you had somewhere or working in the sort of local cafe is irrelevant i i'm more interested in what people have done outside their academic side and i think that's a common theme um when and that transcends also into interviews everyone has done a lot of things so i know these days you your guys cvs will be far better than it would have been in my day which you didn't have to worry about this you didn't have to do volunteering that sort of thing but reality is you you've got this whole you think about your own brand and i'd, I'd be as overt as to say you are selling your own brand on this the challenge i'd say genuinely is academic qualifications are, are a fairly low barrier as it were so most people will kind of get over that side we're not massively interested in that is the message what we're interested in is the individual so how you get that across firstly cv so how you sell yourself i've seen a lot of cvs which are fairly standard um i would advocate everyone put in their unique selling point at the top it's that one place where i know you might do a covering letter but do put that one big paragraph saying this is try to get a little bit about who you are 
it's about getting that right balance, not being too cheesy, but then again, not underplaying yourself. It's got to feel, my tip is, it should feel slightly uncomfortable. What I mean is I, you feel that you're, you're slightly pushing it too far, but not too, not too much. Um, um, so everything you've done, whether it's sport, where it's, you know, kind of music, et cetera, think about gratuitously, you've got to build a, a bank of experiences, right? So, because what you're going to talk about in terms of what you did in your degree course isn't really going to be that mind-shattering in terms of an interview, but applying it. So, you know, I've had cases where, you know, just working in a pub, you think about you're interacting with people, situations happen, how you manage a certain situation can be really instructive. It doesn't have to be anything to do with the job you're doing. It starts to show who you are as a person. How did you manage under stress? You know, we, we and sorry, I'll come to this in a moment. So you go through that CV part, fine. You know, you've got the sort of psychometric type test. Most people do online maths test. That frankly is just practice. It's not hard maths. It's just, can you do it quickly under pressure? Just practice is the only thing I can give you a tip there. If you get through this, you do what is really hard. Let me just give you a little bit of a tip is the video interviews. For many of you who've done this, you're not actually seeing anyone. So it's just pretty shocking, right? You're looking at a computer answering questions. Um, I had someone that kept failing. This is one of my success, success stories. I said, stick a photo on your PC. So actually what they did at their university was they could record videos and they sent video vintage to me to look at. I said, you look like a scared rabbit. I said, the obvious point is you're in a very poor background. The lighting's too dark. You don't look great. Can't really see you very well. You look really kind of, you know, shell-shocked. I said, try and make it as natural as it would be sitting in a nice room interviewing someone. It's hard, but, you know, stick a photo of someone that you like or something you like on the on the laptop or whatever it is. Just try and humanise it a little bit more. Um, the other test, a lot of people are disappointed because often they think they did quite well in that and then they get told, sorry, you're not going forward. The tip is it, you're assessed on a, certainly KPMG, I saw this, you had to do better than average in at least three of a series of questions so they are they are ticking off the really key points you're going to make so think about it and also think about you know just being concise but try and use some experience in terms you know this you know it may ask you some of these you know classic questions increasingly about competency you know when did you make a mistake how do you work in a group this sort of thing you want to you want to try to adjust it's painful but have that bank of answers to go right i know this I'll, I'll, I'll just use that simple example. Um, and then you get in Aviva, you get into an assessment centre. The thing that shocks everyone is that we are, seem to be a bit unusual. There is no content test in terms of the, what it's more about my thing about values. So it's a mixture of the interview is a competency-based interview, which are very general questions, like some of them I just suggested. Um, a lot of them are testing values, as I said earlier. You do a group, classic thing group situation solve a problem that's to see how you get on with people i've done that even at a partner even at kpmg partner program you have to do that uh, same it's the same sort of test actually for being a partner what they're testing is can you get on within the team knowing you're probably competing against people so it's about can you work together but also but it's about how much you decide to what you don't want to be is the person saying nothing you don't want to be the one person ignoring everyone and doing your own thing so it's about you know just doing having a having a view but being reasonable it's about finding that middle ground um so there's a group exercise we actually use virtual reality we have two virtual reality tests one's a bit of a mini maths problem which isn't that sort of great 
and the uh well, it's, i mean it's not heavy going i mean in terms of mass it's, most people will be able to do it yours a resilience test it's like you have to keep building these blocks and they keep falling off the test is how long you keep doing it for um and how until you get to a stage where you go i don't think it's possible to do this but what we're testing is do you just give up um and actually the failure is if people do it and go i can't do this and just give up give up um, what we want someone to do is do it long enough and then go, I don't think this is possible. Uh, and then there's also things like we did origami session where you had to do this origami where we'd taken two parts of the instructions out and see whether they could figure it out. That was just a bit of an you know, initiative test. A um, little bit of a sort of marketing sales pitch uh, where you had to try and position a new product. So very general and people come in thinking, I've got to test me on my knowledge of you know, the equity markets and what interest rates are doing. There's none of that. Um, it's it's more general skills. You can't really prepare for it, though. So, but, but to your point, overall, traits and behaviours, it's about, are, are do we see this person fitting in this organisation, uh, fitting into our values? We're not Goldman Sachs, right? And equally, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think there's any wrong being a, seen to be a softer organisation, but be high performing. Right. So it's not the case of it's dog eat dog and some of the investment banks still have a little bit of that. It's a little bit different to that. But do you see this person fitting in? It's really important. And actually, we could see them progressing. It's not about can they do a job in the next three years? Do we see them actually having the ability to develop over time? I've seen situations where people have going back to that assessment center, smashed everyone out of the park. We sat down afterwards and said, well, obviously, this person scored really well. It's all sort of scored. And someone piped up and said, there is no way that person could work in our team. He would never fit in. Quite an arrogant individual, very difficult, very talented, knew how to get through those challenges. But at the end of the day, they weren't taken forward because the individual was very important. Bearing in mind, also, when I did the interviews, I wasn't shown a CV. I didn't know what degree they'd done um, or any of that nature. And it was really just down to that individual. And of course, they all want to be contrived and get in the, everything they're prepared. The best ones just answered the questions as they came and said, look, this is me. If they're clever, they could try and just get into it. Actually, this is this is kind of what I do. And I give you an example of this, right? So my simple, this is laughable, but other example is as a warm-up, I said we the warm-up question was, tell me something you like to do. I one guy, I say openly, he said to me, I love doing Sudoku. Uh, I mean, I, you know, going and I an immediate reaction was. Do you really? Or is that kind of, do you think that's what I want to hear? And maybe he does, right? So maybe you give him the benefit of the doubt. The best answer I heard was this girl sat there. She was doing an actuarial degree. So I didn't know that at the time, but, you know, very focused on that. Her answer was taking my dog on the beach for a walk, right? And I thought that was a fantastic answer. So she probably counted better than everyone going, well, I love doing mass problems in my spare time. You know, that's not, you know, that's not the person we want, really. Brilliant. So I'm not sure if that helps, but that's no, uh, that's, that's my take. That's on it. a massive help to everyone, especially I think people that'll be looking to go into that uh, next intake of of applicants that that'll be coming up in in such a challenging environment. Having that advice will be um, massively useful for everyone. Um, I think that's a fantastic way to to end it with those sort of thoughts um, from yourself. And thank you very much, Mr. Daryl Murphy, for joining us in the meeting room. Pleasure. Pleasure, guys. Sorry, it's a bit longer than you may anticipate, but hopefully someone got something out of that. And uh, yeah, good luck to everyone out there. It's, I know it's pretty tough, but uh, should be positive, right? It's, uh, the future's yours. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much, guys, and we'll speak to you all very soon.